Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swaddlers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swaddlers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Welcome to ABG, Asian Boss Girl, a podcast for the modern day Asian American woman. I'm Janet. I'm Mel. And I'm Meg. On this podcast, we love getting to talk to amazing and interesting Asian women, women who come from varied upbringings and offer perspectives different than ours, those who have accomplished greatness in their fields of work and have been recognized in their crafts or crafts, and those who are working to advance a more equitable world. Today's guest, Meg, hits on all those points and more. Meg is the co-founder of A-Day, a sustainable capsule clothing brand named by Fast Company as one of the world's most innovative companies. She is also one of Goldman Sachs' 100 most intriguing entrepreneurs, having started her career with Goldman as an investment banker before joining Poshmark as one of their first 50 employees as a senior product manager. She is Oxford-educated with an MBA from Stanford University. Meg is also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu athlete and a business coach for athletes and gyms. Moreover, Meg identifies as queer, British Chinese, and a digital nomad. She is an angel investor and mentor to many communities and individuals advancing AAPI, LGBTQI, LGBTQ+, and third culture interests. Please welcome to the Asian Boss Girl podcast, Meg. Welcome, Meg. Hi, Meg. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. We're so excited. When Janet was reading off like your, I don't say resume, but your background, I'm just like, wow, Meg is super impressive. But, you know, to give our listeners some context, do you mind sharing with them, like, you know, where did you grow up? What was your family dynamic like? And what was like, you know, young Meg like growing up? Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in Beijing in China. And my dad worked in academia. He got this dream opportunity that I think everyone in China was dreaming of. Um, So he emigrated to the UK when I was three. And we actually lived without my dad for two years while he was off teaching at this university in the UK. And eventually my mother and I followed him to the UK and we grew up in Wales uh, in a city called Cardiff. So next door to England. Uh, And I think at the time there was something like four Chinese people in a whole city because the UK was part of the Commonwealth. There were a lot of like South Asians, Indians, Pakistanis, um, especially, but not very many um, sort of East Asians. Um, We knew pretty much all the other Chinese people. And I think the other interesting thing here is that everyone was actually from mainland China. So I had never actually met anyone from Taiwan until I moved to the US. Um, And yeah, so I think my parents in many ways were really typical examples of this model minority. My dad was like super overeducated. He has a bachelor's degree in engineering and a master's and a PhD in something like computational mechanics. 
Um, and they really impressed the idea of education on me for a really long time. Mm-hmm. So I think for, a, you know, the majority and the formative part of my childhood, that was a really large focus. And it was also something that I rebelled really strongly against because that was also what they were pushing me towards. And so what I really was like as a young kid was really about rebellion against this model minority. Um, A lot of what I spent a lot of effort on was how much work can I get away with? You know, how much school can I get away with not attending? But, you know, what's the maximum amount that I could get away with, but without the teacher still writing to my parents and calling them about it. Mm. And so I felt like that was always, you know, this line that I was walking. And I think, you know, with hindsight, this was all around lacking the power to make intentional choices because my parents exerted a lot of control of my childhood. I didn't feel like I had any control. Mm -hmm. And this form of rebellion was really me trying to assert this control and saying, I get to choose what school to go to. I get to choose when I go to, when is my spare time and what I do with my time. And I think, you know, after my late teenage years and early 20s in London, um, we mentioned that I worked in finance in London at Goldman Sachs, and then I moved to California to go to Stanford for my MBA. It was actually in California in the Bay Area that was really the first time I felt truly accepted as an Asian person. Mm. Um, a lot of it was really down to, you know, I met a lot of people who were third culture kids. They spoke Mandarin. There were so many great Asian foods, not just in Chinatown. There was a whole host of variety of Asian folks, not just Chinese people, but Vietnamese, Filipino, etc. And I think in the UK, I had pretty much strictly been around mainland Chinese people. And so that was really crazy for me. And I ended up getting a doctor who spoke Mandarin, a dentist who spoke Mandarin. And, you know, for the first time in my life, I saw these people who reminded me of me and looked like me and had experiences like me. And one of my best friends from business school was a woman called Julie. And I went to stay with her family in San Diego. And she was actually from Taiwan. And when her mother disclosed this to me, I sort of stared at them like they had horns because I didn't know anyone from Taiwan. And my parents had always, you know, talked about this in like a hushed tone, some sort of thing about communists, etc. Anyway, I think, you know, if we go back a little bit, um, it turns out that there was actually a big difference between what being British Chinese meant versus being American Chinese in some ways. And a lot of it was to do with how the immigration started, right? So I think um, a lot of people from Taiwan or Hong Kong immigrated to the US, but a lot of the immigration to the UK was really done through the university system. And as a result, a lot of the mainland Chinese folks were all clustered around these universities. And so all the families that really existed around these universities knew each other, but there wasn't really that much immigration outside of that. Um, And so I think that was really amazing because I really didn't have actually that much experience of what being Asian actually meant to me until the age of, you know, my early 20s. And it was really after then that allowed me to deeply embed my identity of what does being an Asian woman really mean for me. 
Thank you, Meg, for sharing. That's a, that's an incredible background um, to come from, and it offers us a lot of insight as you know our, our parents immigrated to the U.S., and it is very mixed, and it's, you make a very interesting point in how perhaps um, because of the, the, the lineage of you know, individuals that went to the U.K., that probably your experience was um, you know, a lot of the people were very similar, right, mm-hmm. if they were Asian. Um, but you have such an interesting career background. I think it's interesting to hear, you know, you're, you're saying that your, your family was kind of grew up all around the university and education. Um, and you, you know, you mentioned you started your career as an investment banker at Goldman Sachs. Um, and then you moved on to work at Poshmark, which is a totally different industry within technology. Um, and then, uh, you know, then you went into uh, venture investing and now you've started your own company. Um, but all of those, you know, it's very different, I, I guess, like industries, but they all kind of have that commonality of, of, of business. Mm-hmm. Um, did you, you know, and I know that you majored in economics and management, but what, um, I guess what drew you to this line of work? Uh, was it, did you always want to go into business knowing, you know, given that your parents were maybe in academia? Um, how did you, what was your kind of like early career decision-making like? My mother was a huge influence in this. So when she was still in China. She had a job in the pharmaceutical industry, but in the UK, she barely spoke English. So when we moved to the UK, she became a waitress at a Chinese restaurant. Um, and when I was 11, she was just so frustrated by, you know, this economic situation. Um, we were living above a Chinese restaurant and we were pretty poor. I was wearing a lot of secondhand clothing and she decided that this just wasn't going to work for her. So she ended up starting a company and I had to write all of her emails because she couldn't speak very good English. And at first, you know, it was not clear, I think, even to her what her company actually even did. Mm. But she had this kind of tenacity and determination that she was just going to be an entrepreneur. And so, you know, from going to this point when we immigrated, where mm. we were just above poverty level, where I was wearing all these hand-me-downs, by the time I got to college, I think we were pretty successful Mm. and my dad had actually quit his job to work with my mother on the business and seeing that progression and what my mother made of herself really, you know, Mm. gave me this idea that entrepreneurship was a very normal career path, but it actually could change lives. When you look at my resume, you know, maybe some people just see the finance and the venture capital side, but what I see is that, you know, when I was 13 or 14, I was constantly starting little businesses. I had a blog online Ooh. and I designed all these other people's blogs. I charged everyone like 50 bucks. <laughs> and then I became an eBay power seller, specializing in 1930s to 1970s vintage cocktail dresses. Um, that was a great time because it was also at the time when eBay didn't really correct your misspellings. Wow. And it turns out that no one knows really how to spell Dolce & Cabana, who really knows how many Bs there are in that. <sighs> so I'd buy stuff from people who had spelled them wrong and then just resell them. Um, I remember I once sold, I think I was 15, a Yves Saint Laurent smoking jacket for like six pounds um, and sold it immediately for a couple of hundred pounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Ultimately, it was just a really lot of fun. I never really even thought about it as a business. It was more that, you know, I think driven by like my parents constantly pushing me to study, study, study. It was just an outlet from school that wasn't education. And partially also because my parents really didn't give me an allowance. We were still pretty poor at this time. I didn't have any clothing um, that I chose for myself. It was all secondhand from other people. And what I realized was that fabrics were amazing. They are 
so versatile and so you know rich and especially in vintage clothing um some of the fabrics they use are just have such incredible you know construction and weave and quality and that was why I ended up specializing in vintage clothing on eBay because a lot of the stuff from the 1970s 80s 90s are just made from these fabrics that we don't really even exist or use anymore because it drives people's margins down so much and so later on in my career when I went into technology and I went to work at Poshmark to me, it was really about bridging this intersection between finance and technology. But that was something that I had dabbled in for such a long time. And, you know, fashion was something that I had loved and wanted to explore from such an early age. And so, you know, now at A-Day, it's really a lot about that same thing. It's about reinventing clothing. How can we set the standard and the mission of clothing? How can we do it with fabrics that can really do more with less? And so, you know, I think in many ways, that was the problem I was probably trying to solve at home at eBay as well. Thank you, Meg, for sharing your background. It's interesting. It's cool to see that there's like the inklings or the beginnings of the entrepreneurship, you know, happening with your family. And I know they, you know, coming from a, like a, from China into like, you know, working, you know, like, you know, your mom as a waitress to start your own business. It's like, that's a, that's a, like an amazing accomplishment there. Um, my question for you is that, you know, uh, I mean, growing up with this, like, you know, being on eBay and doing all these things and seeing your parents go through, like, starting their own business, like, how did you end up going to Goldman Sachs and being an investment banker? Like, how did you go and go into that? Like, it feels a little bit more like a, maybe like a, a right turn from like that, that beginning. I think that there is a huge amount of information now on the internet, on Instagram, on TikTok, and all of these things really help people to think through, you know, their career paths. Um, and I think that's a really wonderful thing because it allows people to make much more thoughtful choices. Uh, I don't think I had a lot of that information when I was making some of these career choices. It was 2007 when I was looking for a, a summer internship and it was really the height of the finance boom. Um, I didn't have a lot of people to talk to and a lot of people at my university at Oxford, you know, they went into academia, they went to do a PhD, they really loved to study. And out of everyone who wasn't going into academia, I just asked around and I asked them, you know, what places did they think were really cool and where do they think I should work? Mm. And pretty much every single person told me Goldman Sachs. So I decided, great, Goldman Sachs, this is the right place for me. I was not entirely sure what investment banking was. Mm. Um, I read a couple of different websites and I still wasn't sure what investment banking was yeah. um, but I knew that you know I was pretty good with numbers mm. I was reading for a degree in economics um, I was pretty smart I'm sure I could like figure out what investment banking eventually was and I think the most compelling thing for me at the time though with hindsight was actually probably a huge mistake right and the reason if we're truly honest in why I made that decision was because I wanted to go there because everyone else wanted to go there um, and I think, you know, especially as a kid, making a lot of these more formative choices about what college to go to, what degree to study, what major to you know, major in, a lot of this was really based on that. Um, because, you know, you grow up and you learn about things like testing, right? Where you were like, okay, well, getting an A or A plus is better than getting a B or B plus. And if you can do a standardized testing, you score in the 99th percentile, then, you know, your parents were really happy. So as a kid, I understood that when I scored higher on things, then my parents were really happy. And that was what being competitive meant. And so 
by this objective quantitative measure, I started to sort of understand that that was what being the best meant, at least at the time. Right. And so in the UK, when you apply for college, you actually have to pre-select your major. And depending on what major you select, it changes the acceptance rate. So if you apply for, for example, chemistry, it's easier to get into that course at Oxford than it is to get into economics. Mm. And I think if we're being truly honest, the only reason I applied for economics and management at Oxford was because at the time um, I read in the newspaper that it was the hardest course to get into in the entire country. And I was really determined to be the best. Mm. And honestly, I probably would have preferred to study chemistry. But I ended up getting sucked down a lot of these, you know, holes where I needed to prove to myself and also to other people that I was the best because I felt really insecure about who I was. And I didn't have that validation otherwise, you know, without being able to point to these achievements, which could validate that I was the best. And that's why I had to essentially do that in order to satisfy my ego when I was a teenager. And I think that's why I ended up applying to Oxford when I was 17. And also later why I ended up at Goldman Sachs. It was purely this kind of um, ego satisfying desire to try and understand what being the best version of myself meant, which at the time meant going into the statistically most competitive course, which now I realize is kind of a very arbitrary thing. That's incredibly insightful. And I'm uh, we're nodding and I, I hear a lot of my own story and what you're describing. And I think, um, you know, we know that there is a general trend of like high achievement in Asian culture. And it's interesting that you kind of link it back to the sense of insecurity, because I definitely that took me a while to figure out that that was what was fueling a lot of my achievement when I was younger as well. Um, but yeah, this idea of selecting majors and choosing jobs based off of that, because that's mm-hmm. what we were conditioned to kind of reach for. Um, so it makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are nodding their heads right along with you. Absolutely. I think the most powerful thing I can say here is to be really honest with ourselves about the true reasons and the true stories um, instead of, you know, going backwards and trying to create this narrative to lure yourself into this pretense of why you actually did it Mm -hmm. I think that you know maybe there are many other alternative realities where I could have convinced myself that hey I actually really enjoyed advising companies on these strategic acquisition plans and that was not really the case Um, I definitely saw people at Goldman Sachs who were truly amazing at the job and loved it more than I did which was actually one of the first hints to me that that wasn't the right place for me at the time, I tr- just thought it was kind of cool to beat out these other people for the position, which now I'm like, it's honestly a, such a bizarre line of thinking because it has nothing to do with what I really think and feel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm sure a lot of – and there's people that love it. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, there's also <laughs> a lot of people when it's when it's um, a very coveted position, oftentimes people will go into it for different reasons, right, than loving it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could totally relate to this too because, like, even for college, I remember, like – talking to my friends too like I couldn't apply to certain schools because I knew some of my family members were like don't apply to that because that's lower range so I help even for me like was, we were given a bracket like these are the schools you could apply to because it, I think it also comes to like maybe in the Asian cultures like they're saving face and there's like you know they, they want to be able to like you're definitely a representation of your family and like what you get into your major all of this really just is reflection of your name in some essence right um but I totally agree. I think understanding your why as to why you're why you're pursuing something is so 
valuable because it, it just without it you just feel kind of a little lost. Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swathers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swathers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swathers absorbs wetness better than the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With free and gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Meg, you also, you know, mentioned, you know, you co-founded A-Day, a sustainable capsule clothing brand on a mission to create wardrobes for a more abundant life. I totally, you know, stalked your website and the photography is amazing. The clothing looks so great. Um, and you and your co-founder met at Goldman Sachs in London where you discovered your mutual love for e-commerce, design and brand building instead of working on, you know, coal mining acquisition deals. You know, do you mind sharing with the listeners, like, what was it like for you, you know, after realizing maybe your why, like, you know, from leaving a traditional nine to five job into becoming an entrepreneur? I love this fundamental idea of what makes your heart beat faster. And I think that is such a great concept because it's really all about intentionality and making choices that we actively listen to. Mm. I mean, ideally, it's in this little Venn diagram in this beautiful mix between what do you really love and what do you enjoy and what you're really good at. And I think for my co-founder, Nina and I, we were both like totally fine at Goldman, right? Like we were totally okay at finance. We knew how to create the models, but you know, like I mentioned this, there were just people around us all the time who were just so much more excited about Excel than we could ever be. And I remember having this flash of realization, you know, especially let's be clear, like Goldman was never really a nine to five job, but there were so many people who were just absolutely stoked to be working on the financial models of 3am. Whereas like, I really struggled to be motivated at that time or even like past 10pm. And I think what was really beautiful was that, you know, with Nina, my co-founder and I, even at Goldman, our working relationship was just so harmonious. It was, you know, like I mentioned, like your team right here, you know, you're building this podcast for the Asian community and everyone is just so mission aligned. But, you know, when you guys are really mission aligned, it's so easy for you to be part of something so much greater and for all your efforts to be so much more synergistic. Mm. It was always really clear to me that I wanted to do something with Nina because we work together so well and she had thought similarly. So, after I left Goldman, she actually also left Goldman too. She went to work um, in venture capital in Europe at a fund called Index Ventures, where she invested in companies like Deliveroo. Mm. Um, but we were always constantly talking about what were the other companies that we were interested in? What are the sectors that we were interested in? Um, and actually, you know, now when I think about it, a lot of my best friends are actually f- from my time at Goldman Sachs because 
I think we were all on this misguided path a little, right? We, many of us maybe had this kind of need to prove to each other, like, hey, like, I want to be at the most competitive place. This is where all the best people are. Mm. But, you know, underlying that, right, we all had this kind of characteristic where we were very passionate, very driven, and very mission aligned, especially now that many of us have created our own companies and organizations where we are trying to make our impact on the world. And I think the other thing that Goldman really does teach you is that, you know, none of us are afraid of working these 100 plus hour weeks. And so I do think that there are many really cool qualities that I gained from being at Goldman Sachs and also from the people I met at Goldman, even if I wasn't as passionate maybe about the financial model. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting like that pattern that you drew or that trend of characteristics that draw someone to achieve, you know, a very coveted role and and what it takes to then go into to building your own company or that um, the grit and also the passion. So, um, yeah, when you position it that way, it almost seems like it makes total sense that someone would go from maybe Goldman to to starting their own company. Meg, though, you have operated in both of these worlds and. Um, I, I feel like on the surface, maybe it seems like they're very different, right? Working at Goldman Sachs versus running your own company. But as we've heard from you, maybe there are more similarities than than we um, than meets the eye. And in these different worlds, um, these different industries, you have been, you know, an Asian female and queer. And as someone who identifies as three of these very major minority groups, what do you think is the hardest part about being in the workforce? Or can you kind of just speak to the experience of, of that trifecta? I think this is a really powerful question. And especially for me, I think there's really a lot of intersectionality here. And it is especially interesting because I didn't really identify with this trifecta until pretty recently. Um, I came out publicly, I think, three years ago. And so a lot of my experience, my outward facing persona has really been as a pretty straight Asian woman. And I also think that until the Atlanta attack on the spas, so just over a year ago, I didn't really actually understand what an Asian woman, what being an Asian woman meant to me in terms of how other people saw me. Um, but I suspect a lot of my views in terms of who I am and how I saw the world was probably influenced a lot by my upbringing um, in the UK um, and also especially around the media that I was exposed to at that time. And so when I was actually in China, in Beijing, my dad had brought me a VHS tape of The Sound of Music, which was dubbed in Mandarin. And if you've watched The Sound of Music, you know, everyone in it is like, very white, very Caucasian, blonde, blue-eyed, very beautiful. And I watched it repeatedly because it was one of the only things that I had for my dad because he was living in the UK at the time. And somewhere within, you know, the repeated rewatchings, I got it into my head that this was what good-looking men were supposed to look like. They were supposed to be tall and blonde and Caucasian. Um, I'm doing a lot of air quotes right now on things like good looking men. And I think that also really, you know, informed me very much about what relationship dynamics, especially within heterosexual couples were supposed to be like. And so I would say, even though I'd known I was pansexual, say from a pretty early age, um, I had come out to a few close friends at college 
it just felt very restrictive to me in terms of who I saw myself as because I didn't have any role models around me who were queer and I could only see versions of myself that were successful as an Asian woman in a particular role and that role was a very heterosexual Asian woman who sometimes stepped in a role that I now see as pretty hypersexualized. And so I think in a lot of my, especially heterosexual relationships, um, romantically, I kind of played that woman who was a little bit preyed upon. And a lot of what I see in society now is that, you know, I conform to this, you know, more tight fitting, long hair flicking, me love you long time type of woman, because I thought that was what society demanded of me. And also because that was what it was easy for me to pass as, you know, it was easy for me to wear the high heels and the short skirts. Mm. And it only really hit on me during the spa attacks in Atlanta, what the hypersexualization and the fetishization of Asian women truly meant and the impact on it through society and how incredibly harmful it was. And when this sort of hit me as a wave, it was honestly just so upsetting and especially when I realized that so many of my romantic relationships had in a way been a little bit of a farce um, because I wasn't able to truly be who I am. And so I think it's really only been three years since I've been able to step into this identity of who I am as a queer Asian woman and be fully seen in these terms. Um, and while, you know, none of my friends have treated me any differently, I do perceive a gap in terms of how society is incredibly heteronormative still, even though there have been leaps and bounds in terms of, you know, LGBT plus legislation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now when I look at the numbers, right, like, if we look at venture capital funding, something like two to two and a half percent of funding each year goes to women. And that number has been pretty stagnant now for five plus years, even though many, you know, there's a lot of statistics around how female founded companies statistically outperform those that are founded by men. Mm. And then when you look at the numbers for LGBT plus people, right, like they account for less than 1% of all venture capital raised. So I think if I had known some of these things earlier, then yeah, I probably would have gauged in a bunch of negative self-talk and maybe I wouldn't have even raised any money because if you look at 1% multiplied by 2.5%, two, two the chances are really not that great, right? Like even as someone who um, self-describes herself as, you know, really loving competition. But yeah, I think I never really saw myself as that. I just saw myself as someone who was pretty successful. I worked at Goldman. I was an early employee at Poshmark. I worked in venture. I went to Stanford. So I didn't really identify with any of these groups. I just saw this myself the same as any other person, regardless of whether they were male or, or white or kind of queer. I just saw myself as a successful person. And so I do think that, you know, now when I look at representation, right, I think that there are a lot more subconscious biases and that's why it's so important to engage in mentorship. You know, what I also know is that, especially having lived and grown up with my mother who was able to become an entrepreneur and run such a successful business, even though she could barely speak any English, I know that it is very possible to get past a lot of these kind of representation issues and to work harder and like to go for it. I think at some point I also accepted that maybe I was going to have to work harder than the other people, but I really believed that I could do it. 
Um, and, you know, even though these are relatively mar large minority groups, I don't think that I would necessarily been comfortable being an out queer person before, for example, gay marriage was legalized. And actually one of the first questions I asked one of my kind of lesbian friends after I came out was, how should I be an activist? You know, now that I'm out, like, what is my role? Should I, you know, put a little rainbow flag on my Instagram bio? How should I turn up for this community? And I realized that that wasn't really it. It was really just about sharing my experiences as someone who had come out in her 30s, as someone, you know, who we all are different, right? We're all unique snowflakes. And all I really have to lean on is my experience, which is different from other people. And that's neither better or worse. But I think the most important thing is that I speak up and share about leaning into this intentional identity now, which has made me so much happier um, and really allowed me to kind of thrive much more at life. Um, and it is pretty interesting because now sometimes people find me on social media and they're like, hey, I'm also Asian and a queer woman and I've done these things. Now I work at Goldman Sachs and I'm like, wow, how do we even exist? How did we fall <laughs> into this tiny bucket and like come together on the internet? Isn't that amazing? But, you know, what I'm truly grateful for is all the people who really paved this path before me and made it so comfortable for me to be out because, you know, they did all the hard work. And the most important thing, what I see now is to really not be pressured to fall into any of these boxes um, that are easy just because they seem like the easiest path to take that society identifies with, but to really try to be thoughtful and intentional about what is the actual right path for you and you know what truly do you love and makes your heart beat faster right yeah thank you for sharing that that was beautiful um i think you're very right and if you look at and if you focus on only the statistics and the narrative that maybe the outside world pushes it can be so easy to just feel so small and disillusioned but i love that you shared that you had this inner confidence um, and I think everyone can have, I mean, it's hard to foster, of course, you know, not to say that it's an easy thing, but that's a very powerful thing that is within your control. And that is kind of sometimes to focus on that and how you feel and, and your, your direct world versus kind of the outside narrative and the numbers. Um, so thank you for sharing that. It was really powerful. Yeah. And I love how you mentioned how by understanding these hard numbers and understanding, I guess, the story and like the history of what's going on with the, with your community, it's like now you turn that into mentorship, you know, and helping others to kind of build up their companies and whatnot. Um, you have a lot of experience working and mentoring early stage companies. What would you say, you know, Meg, I'm assuming you're very uh, experienced in this. What are the most important things to focus on your first five years as a startup? Hmm. I mean, the first five years are like definitely the most fun and often the most challenging, right? But I think probably it's recognizing that there are so many things that are out of your control. Like, you know, when you work for a company and you're an employee, you have KPIs, you know what your role is, you have this job spec and you know pretty much like, hey, if you do this on a daily basis, then it's going to be good. And if you hit those numbers, then it's great success. And often you find this correlation like, hey, if you work more and work harder, you're probably going to be better at your job and you're going to earn more money. Mm -hmm. And I think the kind of disappointing thing is that when you're starting a company, none of these things could be true. So sometimes you're like busting all this effort and then the numbers just don't really change in the way that you expect it to. 
So I think that when things are not in your control, it's really about redefining what success and failure looks like. Mm. Um, so, you know, when we're younger and when we're still in school, getting a hundred or getting an A plus is like, you know, that is what winning is. And I think when you're starting a company, it's really not about that. And it's instead about figuring out what is growth and what is success. And that might know that might look nothing like you expect it to, um, because you suddenly have to create really like messy um, versions of minimal viable products, which are kind of a little bit rough and not perfect. And you know, if you're used to the sort of perfectionist work that is going to get you an A plus or get you super rewarded on your KPIs. And that's probably going to be really, really different in terms of what success looks like. Mm. I used to have this um, quote taped to my desk, which said, done is better than perfect. And as someone who always fussed about making sure that something is pretty perfect, like I really, really hated it. And, you know, we're going to go on and even in this podcast recording right now, right? We're going to edit out all the bloopers and, you know, some of the ums and uhs and scrap some of the pieces because as a society, we're like conditioned to go for something that's perfect. That's why we have people who lip sync. We have, you know, all these editors to try and make it look perfect. We have filters on Instagram. Um, and I think in starting a new company, it's really about this combination of success and moving faster and recognizing that not perfect is also can be successful. So yeah, I think it's really about redefining what success and failure means. Yeah, I love that answer. And I don't know if it's very obvious, but um, I think we're also asking as a founders of our own small company, trying to get advice from Meg, but I am, um, that's a really good way to like redefine what success means, especially in your first five years as a startup. What would you say for companies that are in their five to 10 years? timeline or mark i think past the five-year point it's a much more interesting problem in many ways you know you already have your processes which are built out you generally have happy employees so i think it's really about scaling and maintaining growth how do you maintain your product quality how do you keep customers happy how do you enrich that experience for all your employees uh, i think it's especially interesting for me now because we went distributed we have folks in the US and Asia and Europe and many people haven't ever even seen each other and I think initially especially on the virtual onboarding we did it not very well mm. and partially I think that's because my co-founder and I are so like used to working remotely but I think it can be a really big transition um, for someone who's never done it before and for them to truly love it so I think what we have now made a much larger focus in is to be really thoughtful about processes in order to help everyone feel really valued even if you you know may not meet them or may not ever meet them which is kind of a creepy idea but I do think crazy yeah. it's really now the reality of where we live in yeah yeah no thanks for sharing that advice and one last thing in terms of like um I guess mentoring, um, you know, now that you guys, like you mentioned, you're scaling your company. And I, I think, it's, I think one people, one of the things people say a lot or from my entrepreneur friends is that managing people might be the hardest thing. And especially as you're growing your team more and more, um, what is one piece of tangible advice you'd give to those in positions of leadership who are trying to create a culture where people can be their full selves? That's a really great question. I think it's so important to be as honest as possible and to really show up in a way that you know, allows everyone to be able to show up as their true and best selves. And so I think if you take a step back, really the most important thing here is 
not just about how can you be your full self, but how can you be the version of yourself that allows you to create the best work. Ultimately, you know, all our intentions are really aligned. Um, and I think, you know, especially when we think about Asian families, right, there's such a concept of FaceTime or saving face. And instead, I think we really need to recreate ourselves as these role models to be who we should in the way that we want to show up for other people. Mm. And so I think it's about being honest about, you know, when you're having a mental health day, which makes it easier for someone else to say, hey, I'm having a mental health day, mm. instead of, for example, lying about it and saying, oh, I'm actually feeling a bit ill, I have a fever, I have a cold and flu instead. It's really about giving permission to other people um, so that they can like live their true and full lives instead of having to lie to each other. I think one of the other interesting concepts I've been thinking of is about the emotional burden of taking time off. Um, this seems like a silly thing, but one of the pieces of feedback I was getting is that, you know, even though we have a vacation policy, which is like, you know, take as much paid leave as you want, a lot of people actually do worry about everyone else who's still working while they're on vacation. Mm. And so I think one of the solutions around this is to make sure that everyone goes on vacation at the same time, so mandatory holidays. It's a little bit difficult when people are in different countries, but we've been experimenting a little bit about this. So we asked everyone to take Earth Day off. Um, but I think what that really means is that you have a day where everyone's truly focused on themselves. So you don't have this pressure on yourself of wondering, oh my gosh, what are all these slacks and emails I'm going to come back to when I turn on the computer, turn on my inbox. Um, and it's a lot more of like a true, true break, which is really what time off is meant to be about and so yeah I think in today's world it's not really about what skills do you have but who are you and how do you fit into this company's culture and can you be your true self or do you feel like the company's culture is a burden that you have to fit yourself into someone else to thrive there which is a huge emotional burden and probably means that you're not able to do your best work mm, I love that advice two things that you said I thought were really powerful. One is to lead by example. So if if I as a leader am able to communicate to people, hey, I'm taking a mental health day, that gives you know the, the other people on my team permission to also feel okay doing that. And I think that that is an incredibly powerful um, and effective way to kind of to, to make it okay and to be accepting for people to to be them full selves and then secondly like you said I didn't think about that's a very creative way to problem solve around vacation time is just make sure everyone's off at the same time so you don't have you know you're still thinking like oh emails are coming through and the activity just like shut down the whole operation so everybody feels free mm -hmm. um, so I love that we're probably we'll think about ways to implement that for ABG. <laughs> I was on the hunt for an anklet for the longest time. Personally, I love the look of anklets. It's classy yet sexy at the same time. I knew I found the right one when I laid my eyes on Orate's mini gold bar anklet. Orate is a fine jewelry brand founded by women for women. Pieces range from classic to statement to completely original. Orate makes the jewelry you've always wanted but could never find. Besides loving the look of my mini gold bar anklet, I truly appreciate the quality of it and of course the compliments. Because it's all real gold, you can wear it and never have to take it off. It's with me when I shower, work out, sleep, cook anything. It's jewelry for life. 
Are you currently eyeing a piece but not ready to splurge all in one go? In addition to their transparent and fair pricing, Orate has also teamed up with a cruise savings so that you can enjoy the options of saving up for your dream jewelry. For 20% off your first Orate purchase, go to oratenewyork.com abg. That's A-U-R-A-T-E newyork.com and use promo code abg. That's 20% off with no minimum spend and they rarely have discounts as high as 20% off. So I really encourage you to shop now while it's going on. This is the best offer out there and exclusively for my listeners. So once again, go to oratenewyork.com abg and use promo code abg to get 20% off. So we're talking about kind of what it is to be a leader inside of a company. But outside of that, Meg, you shared that you are a mentor for a lot of individuals that identify as female and or queer and or BIPOC uh, founders. Um, Can you share with us a little bit more deeply in how you began this mentorship journey? Um, You know, the people that you currently mentor, what is the way that you're generally developing these relationships with them? And how would you describe your mentoring style? I think a lot of these things happen very organically. You know, I, I think especially when I decided to mentor people, I didn't pick any specific areas. It was more that these were just the people from my networks. Yeah. Um, I mentioned that I've always been very passionate about helping Asian communities. And these were a lot of the people who would reach out to me. And then when I looked at my angel investments, I was like, wow, a lot of these companies were predominantly founded by people of color and women and that just felt like a very natural thing um Mm. one of my angel investments is everyday humans which is a skincare company that i know has also been involved with hbg in terms of giveaways so that's awesome um but i didn't really feel like i had a mandate to specifically help those people they just happened to be people that i knew and i think this is so important that i will emphasize this I strongly believe we have a duty to mentor the people around us and to help the people as much as we can, because I think that is the point of why we exist, right? Like, so I think, you know, for some of life, maybe that's through childhood and our teenagers and maybe even our 20s, maybe even part of our 30s, like we can be hedonistic and we can have a lot of fun and party and do all the things and whatever. And you're allowed to have all of the fun, right? But you, I think we as humans exist in order to create a better future. And especially if you have a platform, you have to do that work. And you know, you guys know that because you have Asian Bostel and you're spreading all these incredible stories and that is your mission. And you guys also know that that's why you and your team are here and why we exist. Um, I think everyone should mentor people. It's such an incredibly powerful relationship. And one of the things that makes me also feel really aligned and in tune with who I am. Um, I also know that, you know, when it's someone who you care about, you also understand a lot of the struggles that they have been through, especially if you cross over any of these underrepresented groups. And if it's a topic that I'm also interested in, I know that I can show up much better as a mentor. And my style as a mentor is very much, you know, I am a questioner. Um, I think people reach out to me when they have a specific problem that they want to solve. And my commitment to them is I'm always incredibly honest. In fact, when I was younger, I would actually say I was probably brutally honest to the point of being like probably not tactful enough. But I think, you know, what people really appreciate me for is that I will tell them exactly how I feel. 
and I will try very, very hard for them. And I'll never sugarcoat it because I tell them exactly what I believe they need to hear in order for them to grow to the next step, whether that's emotionally, personally, or for, you know, their company. I think it's I think it's also cool that you're able to acknowledge like oh I was able to evolve my own mentorship style based off learning I guess learning more tact how to address certain um the harder things. I had a question about mentorship. I think um, I feel like growing up we're taught like you know obviously to find a mentor to help you with stuff, but I do think mentorship is also like a relationship you're building with your like a mentor and mentee. Would you say men like mentoring someone is kind of like? Like, is it when you're mentoring someone, is it more like, uh, I'm going to help you uh, reach the next step in your career and then our mentorship is over? Or is it more like a lifetime kind of relationship? Like, how would you describe a mentor and mentee relationship, I guess? I think any relationship is really a beautiful evolution, right? Mm -hmm. Like, in reality, there's two people in any relationship and there's no objective reality. But, you know, like in any relationship, it can evolve into all sorts of different directions. Um, like, you know, in romantic relationships, there are ones that continue on to friendship. And there, there are ones where, you know, maybe you just say happy birthday mm. once a year and that's it. I think that diversity is absolutely fine. Like, it doesn't mean that these relationships are better or worse. It's just, you know, they've had their go. Mm. But I do think for the moment, right, that moment while you're both present, when you're very engaged in the mentorship, you have ownership in each other's lives. And it does have this emotional connection rather than just a business connection. Because there should also be really fun. Um, I recently joined the board of a skincare company called Liliana Naturals. It's clean skincare, super affordable, one of the biggest um, independent brands on Amazon. And initially I was a little bit hesitant to do it because my friend asked me to join her board. She and her brother had recently acquired the company that Ethiopian Japanese are super cool. Um, but I was worried because I didn't want to do a bad job for them, right? I thought that would maybe harm our friendship. Mm. And one of the things she said to me, which I thought was so compelling was that as we get older, we should spend more time working with the people we love and engage in work projects with the people we want to spend time with, right? Because especially as we have families and all these other obligations, really, you know, working on projects with people is actually a great, you know, way to spend time with them. And I sort of think that's also kind of how ABG got started. Yeah, that's beautiful. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something Janet would really like. I feel like you said that before, how you wanted yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. I think the the idea, you know, people talk about like work-life balance, but oftentimes like the reality is that some people will say their opinion is that it is hard if you love your work to ever really have a fair work-life balance. So one way to kind of, I think, work around that is learning to bring more of your life into your work, right? With people mm -hmm. that you naturally would want to be around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think if people really see, you know, work as a split off part of their lives and yeah just into nine to five and you know their work friends just their work friends I think that's a huge loss on your life especially as we are now so integrated and work is such a huge you know part of who we are yeah I think on top of being a mentor Meg you're also a business coach uh, which is insane to me how you could do everything at once so um, I think business coach is probably too fancy a word for what I do <laughs> Um, but the context of this is I started a sport called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu a few years ago. 
this is actually how I ended up coming out because I fell in love with this woman who is a professional athlete. She's a five-time world champion. Her name is Margot Ciccarelli. We fell in love. It's very beautiful. Um, and I also picked up this really weird sport and I got introduced to this world that I'd never really seen before, right? Which is martial arts. And, you know, pretty much at every step of my life, whether it was through parents or educational jobs, I'd essentially created a social circle where I only associated with people who had also gone to these schools and jobs and, you know, workplaces. And so a lot of the folks I met in martial arts, um, they hadn't gone to college, you know, maybe they were working a minimum wage job at Starbucks, but they happened to be really, really, really good at jujitsu. Mm. And a lot of these people had never read a business contract and a lot of them were really, you know, struggling financially and living paycheck to paycheck, not knowing where the next money was going to come in, not knowing if they were going to be able to afford rent. And as silly as this is, right, like I, it just dawned on me that these people weren't a part of my social circle, but I don't know if, unless I did jujitsu, if I would have even met really any of them in any other way, because that was just not how like my life had been constructed, like totally unintentionally. Mm. and I think that there were a lot of assumptions I really had to let go of right like my partner did not go to college and before her I'd never really dated anyone who hadn't gone to college but she's just so intelligent right like you know I find her sometimes on a Saturday morning and she has JSTOR pulled up and she's reading a paper on Wittgenstein and I would never do that (laughs) but I realized that you know going to college is actually not an indicator of being intelligent and I had always assumed that it was because that was how I'd approach college, right? Mm. And all that going to college means is that you went to college. It really doesn't mean anything else. Mm. And instead, you know, my partner, Margot, she decided to do jujitsu. So from the age of 18 onwards, she trained like six to eight hours a day in jujitsu and becoming a master at the movement and truly world class at it. Um, But then, you know, the more I learned about her and how she made her income, I realized that a lot of people and organizations were actually just taking advantage of her. Mm. And a lot of it, you know, it wasn't clear how much of it was intentional or unintentional, but she just didn't know very much about business contracts or making money. And so maybe in some Mm. ways it is me being a business coach, but I think of it more as like a fight for financial equality and equity for athletes. And this isn't really just about jujitsu. This pretty much exists in many sports, any support, um, any sport without a professional league, uh, where a lot of the athletes who are at the very, very best of their game, you know, people going to the Olympics, for example, they can barely support themselves or make it past the poverty line. Uh, So, yeah, I think it's a really, really hard life because you're constantly tired, you're training all the time, your income is up or down because you're not relying on a paycheck. And so you have all this financial worry and emotional burden, and it makes it very, very hard for you to be able to concentrate on your training every day. Mm. And these people, honestly, they work so much harder than anyone I've ever met. And I got so angry and upset about this, which is why I decided I was going to teach these people how to make money. Um, And I started creating this content on Instagram and also creating content around sexual harassment because there's a lot of sexual harassment in jujitsu and many other sports. Wow. Um, and it was incredibly fulfilling. Uh, it 
is a journey that I never thought I would engage in. Um, it's been pretty wild because people like DM me on a daily basis and tell me that I'm changing their life. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think what it truly showed me is that we all have these skills that can be so powerful for someone else because they don't know them. But we don't really know that because we don't necessarily associate with those people all the time. And I also think that especially, you know, across the world of business, especially when we think about, say, venture capital, right? We're always thinking about target addressable markets, like how big of a business will this be? And that really misses out on the potential of individual impact that, you know, touching people's individual lives can have. And so I think the closer we keep our social circle, we really don't realize how magical we all are. But the more we can share our skills with people outside of that, it can really change people's lives. And you actually don't even have to do very much. Yeah, that's a very, that's beautiful. It's like you are basically like this ambassador into this world where for you, these are very like kind of everyday things, but um, they, they hold such value to a world of people where that is not a skill set for them, right? Um, and I definitely relate to this idea of kind of reshifting your definition of like success and intelligence because I've jumped around quite a bit in my career as well. And I remember I did like a boot camp in advertising and I suddenly was around all of these individuals who also, you know, I was used to going to school and getting a degree and some of them, you know, with when it's like when it's they have like an art background or design background and their schooling or their uh, their training is very different, but they were amazing at their work. So um, I love that messaging and I would definitely encourage people to understand and question kind of, you know, kind of like immerse yourself in worlds that are different than yours. Um, but how did how did you get into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu? Actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, how did you find that world? I think it was a long dream of mine, you know, um, to be like a little bit better at a sport. Like I'm not even going to say athlete, but the truth <laughs> was, I think, you know, when I was a kid, even when they needed the bare minimum amount of people to turn up for a sports team, they still had a lot of reservations about picking me. Um, so, you know, I've always watched these martial arts films growing up, like Shaolin mm. stuff and I thought the idea of having a black belt was cool, but I really didn't know, you know, the difference between Taekwondo or karate or jujitsu. Um, so I went to this gym, which did Brazilian jujitsu. And it was only honestly because I was trying to go to this Pilates studio above it and the doors accidentally opened into this Brazilian jujitsu gym. And, you know, when the elevator opened, there were all these guys with um, the kimono was kind of half open and every single guy pretty much had an eight pack. So I was like, whoa, what is this place? Mm. And later on, when I joined the gym, it turned out that a lot of these, you know, guys actually turned out to be models. They were with, you know, signed with IMG and other places. <laughs> and that was why it was a gym of like exceptionally good looking, mostly half naked men. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and so I decided to check out what the sport was. It turned out it was incredibly intellectual, uh, incredibly satisfying, um, and so thoughtful, right? And I got in a shape in which I'd never really been in shape before. And this all happened when I was 31. Mm. Um, and, you know, a couple of years down the line, I now compete at jiu-jitsu at a pretty high level, um, I fight people who are full-time athletes who train like two or three times a day. Um, I medaled at the world championships last year wow. and I try to train, you know, at least I say four or five times a week for 
two to three hours a day mm. and I think the thing that I'm really grateful for is that it's an opportunity I never thought would exist for me um especially being kind of older which is why I felt like I had to give it this shot and you know I think we all have these ideas like you know maybe I'm going to be a rock star or maybe I'm going to be <laughs> a artist and I thought it would be really cool if maybe I could be a little bit sporty and I never really thought that it would get to this point and I feel so grateful that I've managed to you know hit all of and not even hit but like completely over succeed any expectations I had of myself as an athlete but it's really about you know redefining who we are and never kind of letting go of that never letting go of this opportunity that we could and choose to be someone new if we wanted to wow you know now I've been offered fights and professional promotions where sometimes you know even other people in other countries are watching this and I think it is all around this idea of dropping any preconception of who I am and instead of being wrapped up in this kind of constant evolution of who we are um, that we are not weathered to because I think any pre-existing concept is really wrapped up in ego. Yeah, that is so inspiring. Oh my gosh. I, I love that you were able to dive deeper into the, like why you looked into it. And my gosh, you train two hours a day. That is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that is such an evolution. <laughs> a lot of the people I compete against, you know, they are much younger. So often um, 17 to kind of 22, they're full-time athletes, they train uh, six to eight hours, eight hours a day. So I think when people wow. hear that I actually train two to three hours a day, they really think I'm slacking off. <laughs> so one of the things that I actually like to do is to make recordings of me training um, from like when I am actually training and to like post them on Instagram so that my competitors think that I'm actually training more than I am. Oh. <laughs> That's very smart. It's a good strategy. <laughs> I love what you said about constantly reinventing yourself. I there's so many things that come to mind when you when you said that. Like, first of all, like I can really relate to you about you know feeling like wanting to be a like a sporty or a, like person because the people who listen to podcasts they know that like amongst the three of us, I am not. I used to be like I'm not athletic at all. Like I don't like hiking. I physical activity for me. I'm just like no, thank you. But I think in some ways that identity that I've been I've been tied to ever since I was probably in high school or even elementary school of not being athletic. You just kind of attach yourself to this. And you're like, you know what? I'm not going to even try. Like, I don't want to work out and whatever. But I told myself to change that mentality because I'm like, I read somewhere in a book that's like, you know, when you, you shouldn't say I'm not sporty. I'm not athletic. You, you just say like, oh, like, I, I think just not identifying with yourself with these titles can, can loosen the reins a bit and having you explore different things. So, I mean, I started recently, like, I guess like finding a gym and working out myself. But when you, I love your story of how you were able to like, said you said yourself like hey like I'm not sporty but I want to be and I want to see and you found your sport and now you have dived so deep into it I think it's really incredible I remember reading something that um, Janet wrote on the website which is that you know you'd looked at so many different careers and interests and pursuits and I think it's really just about that right like we who we are in our heads is so important but it works really the other way around and, you know, especially like during the pandemic, I think a lot of people had to let go of who they were and what they thought of themselves. 
um, and especially, you know, for athletes, um, including my partner, a lot of them got really depressed because they couldn't train. And, mm. you know, being an athlete is really around this cycle of competition. So if you're not mm. able to compete, then who are you as a person, right? And it's similar to work, right? Like when you get fired from work, when you're unemployed, a lot of people go through this identity crisis. Yeah. And often a conclusion is that, you know, when I am unemployed or when I don't have this, therefore this makes me a failure which is not true mm. all it means is that that part of your identity is no longer true and I think that is also why it's so important for us to have these constantly evolving identities so that you know nothing happens which can be very jarring like you know getting fired or getting injured um, and that's a big part of why identity and ego depression are very linked to each other so one of the healthiest things I think for us to do is to constantly try to reinvent ourselves and at least have these questions like, you know, who I am, who am I, and why do I have these assumptions about who I am? Yeah, yeah, no, I love that you brought that up and also jogged my memory. I do think it's healthy to think that way because I think in some ways, like I, I'm going to correlate to like being an artist or a musician that like, I think sometimes like, for example, if an artist is used to one genre, they switch over to a different one. They get a lot of criticism because like their fans or their listeners, they want the same thing. But the reality is as human beings, we're going to evolve and change through different seasons and as we age. So it's kind of like in some ways, it's ridiculous to think that we're always going to be the same, whether it's our interests, whether it's our, the notion of what people think we are. I just feel like that's something people have to accept. It's like, I'm going to evolve and change. And I think even as a company, that's going to also happen with your company as a founder and as, an, as, an, as you as an individual change too. So I do love that you brought that up. And um, Meg, I know you shared like, you know, you, how you got into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you know, your your relationship, your your mentoring, your company. You have so many things you're passionate about, you know. What is your perspective on like the work-life balance and, you know, is it possible to achieve? And how do you go about, you know, balancing your work and your life? This was much harder for me to balance when I was younger. And I do think that is what companies should try and do to give people back a lot more control um, over the freedom of their time. Mm -hmm. If we take a step back and look at companies, right, like what they really care about is the output. Um, uh, you know, because if you create great work, which creates great output, this helps them earn more revenue they should also care about you know helping you individually as an employee to realize you know your potential because that's very self-fulfilling but you know otherwise like they shouldn't care that much what you do with your time as long as you don't bring down others with you right um and so i think the more control you have over your life that is generally better for people and so that should allow you to have great work-life balance but on the flip side I do think it requires people who are emotionally mature and able to set that balance right like I remember you know as a freshman in the first year of college even though papers would be due like two weeks away I'll, you know I definitely interpreted that as okay I have two weeks to like party and then I'll like cram this in for the last you know couple of hours instead of working steadily towards that goal so I think that, you know, while this does require some element of emotional maturity, um, true work-life balance is definitely so important, but also a little bit outdated. Um, I do think 
a lot of people enjoy work now in a way that they've never done before. It, you know, I think that's really in great part due to people now being a lot more mission aligned than they've ever been before. Um, and there are now so many different ways you can work and express yourself. So a lot of people are really choosing to do something they're truly passionate about instead of work specifically for a paycheck. Mm. And so, you know, in light of that, one of the most beautiful things is really to be able to kind of pick and choose your work and to do work that truly nourishes you and also helps you earn income. And in many ways, I think that is not really work. And I also think work can be very cyclical, right? Like um, sometimes you want to work more when sometimes you want to work less. Like I was in a car crash in January and that meant I couldn't train jujitsu for a few months. But in many ways, that was also kind of great because it really allowed me to dive into work with A-Day. And that was a really beautiful experience. And life has all these ups and downs and we really need it to be fully flexible. I think there are tragedies and people get cancer and, you know, maybe your parents die and people also have families and, well, not all these are tragedies, right? But they do require a lot of flexibility and ups and downs and work has to be able to account for these things rather than just be a very bounded and constrictive nine to five. Um, so both of my parents actually had cancer within six months of each other. So that was very real for me. And that was why I left my job at Poshmark in the Bay Area because they were in the UK. And also why I start, ended up starting A-Day. Um, but I do think work has to be flexible enough for us to be able to counter these things because that is in principle why women were you know, largely not going back to the workforce and no longer engaged in the workforce because they didn't have the support that they needed to be able to return as working mothers. Um, and I think it's really interesting for me as an employer, right? Because employees in both US and Europe have vastly different rights. And we have these committees at um, my company where we try to get to like a global norm. And it's almost impossible because the laws in different countries are so wildly different where in many places in Europe, we're talking about 12 months of paid maternity leave, which is so wildly different to where it is in the US where virtually nothing is mandatory. Um, but flexibility is truly like the most powerful tool, in my opinion, for people to be able to bring their best selves to work and to have a job that they not only like, but truly love and enjoy. Mm, yeah, I had not um, had conversations with people about work life in this way where you pull, I like what you said about thinking about work in different periods, because that is the reality of life is that, you know, we're not, it's not a Monday to Friday mm -hmm repeated x amount of times infinitely it is you know some months you're going to face different um, things and you can shift your schedule and work a little bit more and some months you'll you know have other circumstances and you maybe shift less so i think that's a really great way to think about work and especially like you said because nowadays there are so many ways that people can work and support themselves um Ending our beautiful conversation today, we do want to ask you, Meg, what is one piece of advice you've been given, whether in work or life or personally, that you always go back to? Yeah, I think it's really what I mentioned earlier, which is what makes your heart truly beat faster? Mm. If it's not something you're truly excited about, you probably are never going to be excited about it, right? 
Um, so it's easier to just cut your losses up front. I always compare everything to dating. And, you know, I think if you truly don't feel the butterflies early on, it's going to be very hard to fall in love with them later on. And I really love applying this to everything, whether it's work or anything else in your life. Um, how do we do things that we are truly passionate about? We do it by finding what makes us truly passionate and being really honest with ourselves about that because that's ultimately what's going to make us happy. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you so much, Meg, for being with us today and sharing your golden nuggets and even sharing your story with our listeners. Uh, Where can our listeners find you if they want to, I guess, stalk? Uh, Absolutely. I am on Instagram at meg.he. And you should definitely follow my company on Instagram, which is (laughs) at A-D-A-Y. Thank you very much. If you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and share this episode with your friends. You can also support us through monthly donations at anchor.fm slash asianbossgirl slash support, or get some merch at asianbossgirl.myshopify.com. If you resonate with today's episode, let us know in the comments of our IG post. If you'd like to put faces to our names, you can find us on YouTube where we share vlogs, an audience Q&A segment called GRBG, and much more. Our handle on both platforms is asianbossgirl. And here are today's shoutouts. From Chelsea in Los Angeles to Isabella, a shoutout to my best friend and roomie. I know you'll hear this because we both listen to ABG religiously. From Mark and Ben in the Bay Area to Tina, happy birthday to the best mom and wife in the world. We love you. From Mickey in Tokyo, Japan to her American little sister, Akiko, congratulations on your graduation. I'm so proud of what you've accomplished and excited about what the future holds for you. Sending love to Minnesota from Japan. And Car Chung in New York is sending a shout out to us, Helen, Mel, and myself. Hey ladies, thank you so much for coming out every week with fantastic episodes. I've learned so much about myself through you ladies and all the guests you've had. I look forward to every week to your podcast. You ladies are awesome. You inspire me to be a better version of myself. Thank you, Car Chung. We love you so much for listening and supporting us. We would definitely not be here doing this without you. If you'd like to send a few words of encouragement or a shout out to a friend, check out the link in the show description or our link tree and our link in bio on Instagram and click on shout outs. And last but not least, thank you to our super talented editor, Michelle, for working all her magic on our episodes, including this one. Well, thank you so much, Meg. And with that, we'll catch you all in the next episode. Bye. Bye.